open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10 this morning. Mark chapter 10. We are going to try to finish Mark chapter 10 before I leave. That's the goal. I think it'll happen. It depends upon how long-winded I get in Sunday school. And my wife is back there saying, yeah, that's not going to happen. Um, we are going to be looking at verses 17 through 31 this morning. For the sake of time, we're not going to read them right now, but we will read them as we go through the lesson. And so Mark 10, 17 through 31. In the United States, there's a long-running game show. It's called Let's Make a Deal. Has anybody ever seen or heard of that show? You have? It, it, I remember that show, if I remember correctly, when I was a kid, probably about Matthew's age. I would do what any good teenager is not supposed to do. I knew I could get away with murder at my grandparents' house, so I would go to my grandparents' house where I could watch TV. Um, knowing that my mom and dad weren't necessarily in favor of me watching TV. So I'd go there and I could get away with murder at grandparents' house. Um, but one of the shows, if I remember correctly, that we watched at that time was a show called Let's Make a Deal. It was a game show. And in that game show, contestants are asked to trade something of value for a chance to win an item of greater value. It's a game of chance. But sometimes there's a good deal of strategy involved in determining both the value of the item to be traded and the value of the potential price. While this game show is just for entertainment, it is no laughing matter when you and I come to God with the attitude of let's make a deal. Whether it is an unbeliever who wants a relationship with God as long as there is nothing too fanatical involved, or a believer who loses the joy of salvation and begins to wonder, what's in Christianity for me? When serving others, we too often want to evaluate our commitment to God by how much we will get in return. How insulting it is to a loving God who has freely given us all things when we value the things of this world more highly than the things of the world to come. When we come to God and we say, God, I will do this if you do this. I will serve you if you will. We're coming to God with a wrong attitude. And God gave us salvation, the most valuable gift this world has ever seen. The most valuable gift this world will ever know. For us to turn our backs on him and say, okay, God, I know you gave me, you gave, you freely gave me this, but I'll do this if you do. He's already done everything for us. In this text, we meet a wealthy man who wanted to know what it would cost him to buy a relationship with God. We also find a group of believers, the apostles, wondering what they would get in return for having given it all. What neither the rich man nor the apostles understood was that the accounting system used in this world does not work if we are living for eternity. 
In no way is this text against appreciating material or financial blessings we may enjoy in this world. But if our possessions possess us, rather than the other way around, we are on the wrong track. If our possessions possess us, rather than us possessing our possessions, we're on the wrong track. The accounting system of the world does not work for a believer living the life that God has called them to be. So on your discussion questions, in discussion question number three, um, what is the difference between the world's accounting system and God's accounting system? Okay, we know what an accounting system is. It's a way of tracking material things, a way of tracking material blessings, a way of tracking material possessions. What would you say the difference is between God's accounting system and the world's accounting system? Because the Bible clearly teaches that there is a difference. How would you quantify or how would you explain that difference? Somebody want to help me out here? No takers this morning. We're quiet. Okay, the world's accounting system is focused upon what? Gain. Gain. Personal gain. How much can I gain? How big can my savings account go? How can I increase my standing with men? How can I increase? How can I get? God's accounting system is based upon giving. So the world's system is based upon gain, while God's accounting system is based on give or giving. They are totally, completely opposite of each other. And if we're going to live for Christ, the Bible says a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. If we try and, well, I can live under the world's accounting system for this, for this part of my life, for this little bit, and I'll live for God in this little bit, it, it really doesn't work. It's one or the other. We have to make a choice. Are we going to live under God's accounting system, or are we going to live under the world's accounting system? In this passage, we have two groups of people. We have a man, we're going to look at him in a little bit more in depth here in just a minute, but we have a man who wanted to know what it was going to cost to buy a relationship with God. What can I give you to have a relationship? And then we have the, the apostles. We have given everything up, God. What do we get in return? You know, we have the unbeliever looking to buy. We have the Christian saying, You know, God, I, I serve you. What do I get in return? Both approaches are wrong. Both approaches are the world's financial system looking to gain instead of looking to give. We see here a faulty premise in Mark 10, 17. And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? In verse 17, we read of a man who came running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? 
Aside from the fact that he was wealthy, Mark does not include many other details about this man. But the occasion is also recorded in at least two of the other three Gospels. In Matthew chapter 19, we learn that he was a young man. And Luke chapter 18 describes him as a ruler. So this was a man who had youth, he had influence, and he had money. What more could a person of the world ask for? Youth, influence, and money. In other words, he had it all. Everything this world believes is of great value. But with all of his advantages, with everything that he had, he still felt like he still knew there was something missing. I have often described it as a God-sized hole in our lives. And people in this world are looking to fill that God-sized hole. The Bible says that there is none that seeketh after God. Um, they know that they have an emptiness and they're looking for something to fill it, but they don't know what will fill it. So they turn to drugs, they turn to family, they turn to work, they turn to, to this world's accounting system trying to fill this God-sized hole. This young man had gotten to the point where he had it all. He was on the fast track to success. But he still knew something was missing. Consider for a minute with, us, with me how this man approached Christ. First, the Bible tells us that he came running. That speaks of his humility and his earnestness. But also of an eagerness that would have been considered more appropriate for children than for adults. So he came running, speaks of humility and earnestness, eagerness. He, he, came, he wanted to get to Christ. He was eager to get to Christ. Then he kneeled, which again paints the picture of humility and sincerity. And he used words of great respect, good master, to refer to Christ. He came approaching Christ in a, and I'm going to put it in an acceptable manner, with humility and respect. Unlike the, unlike the Pharisees and the Sadducees and, and the religious rulers of the day, they came approaching Christ trying to trip him up, trying to cause problems. This young man came with humility and respect. But despite his good approach, however, the question he asked, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life, was problematic. He used the word inherit to refer to the way eternal life is obtained. Inheritances are not granted based upon what you do. They, are only, they only come by the way of birth. This young man was right in referring to eternal life as an inheritance. The Bible talks about, in the book of, um, I believe it's 1 Peter, it talks about our inheritance, incorruptible. When we accept Christ, when we come to Him and we're born into His family, we, we become a member of the family of God, we are guaranteed an inheritance. But inheritances are not purchased. Inheritances are granted. This man came um, showing that he thought he could purchase everlasting life. He was looking to make a deal 
with God? What can I give you for eternal life? Let me just say, God doesn't want us to, He doesn't need anything that we have. He doesn't need our speaking ability, our scholarly ability. He doesn't need our service. He, he really doesn't need anything we have. He is sufficient in and of himself. He says, come unto me and I will make you fishers of men. Come unto me and I will give you eternal life. He gives everything. We need him. He does not really need us. And this young man, he came to, to God and said, I want to give you something so you can give me eternal life. There is no price that can be paid to receive the only commodity that brings God's favor. The commodity that we need is not corn or soybeans. It's not um, wheat or rice. The commodity that we need is grace. And when we come into God's presence, we would do well to recognize that even His throne is called grace. Hebrews 4.16 says, let us, come there, let, let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This man did right. He did much right initially. He came with the respect. He came with the humility. He came with earnestness to approach the only one who could tell him about eternal life. But his question revealed a problem with pride. He thought he had something to offer God. At the root of this man's approach to God was the root of pride. I am something special and God needs me. I have something that God wants and if I give him that, then he will give me this. Again, we're back to the world's accounting system. Gain. What, if I do this, then I will gain that. And let me just tell you straight up, you, 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 I, I beat around the bush a little bit, but that is not an appropriate motive for serving God. We do not serve God to gain. That should not be our motive for our Christian service. The Apostle Paul said that the love of Christ constraineth us. The motive that we have to serve Him is the love that He has given us. And it comes back down to giving. In verses 18 through 23, we see the focal point. And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud God. Honor thy father and mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him, and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come and take up the cross and follow me. And he was sad at that saying, and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked round about and saith unto his disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? Christ lovingly dealt with this man, beginning with the first words out of the man's greeting. Jesus was saying unto this man, Do you not understand who I am? 
Do you, do you recognize that I am God in the flesh? Until we accept the deity of Christ, we can go no further in our relationship with Him. We must be willing to accept Christ's deity before we can advance in a relationship with Him. We have a couple in our area that, that made contact with us about two years ago, Lydia. Yeah, right at about two years. 18 months to two years ago. And we've been working with them and, and talking with them, but they will not, under any circumstance, admit that Jesus is God. They will say that He's the Son of God, but they will not admit that He is God. They put Him on the same level as um, Lucifer. They say Lucifer is another son of God. And that might tell you what religion that these people come from. No. Jehovah's Witness. Um, but until they can come to accept Jesus Christ as God, we really cannot move forward in any type of spiritual relationship. Jesus came to this man and said, Do you really understand who I am? Then Jesus brought up the Jewish law, with which this man would have been very familiar. The law serves a purpose but not the purpose this man believed. It is a tool given by God. It is not a tool given by God whereby we can use it to justify ourselves. This man, he, he seems to use the wall to justify himself. I have done all of these since from my youth. I am a good man. But in fact, the wall does just the opposite. Galatians 3.24 says, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. The law reveals our need for our Savior. Not, it is not to be used to justify ourselves and say, Look at how great I am. Pastor has been preaching about this on Sunday afternoons. The law does not say, Look at how great I am. Ain't I something special? The law reveals the fact that we are nothing more than filthy, rotten sinners, saved by grace. It emphasizes our need for our Savior. To emphasize this, Jesus said in Mark 10:19, Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not, honor thy father and mother. The man replied, Master, all these have I observed for my youth. This man was probably, in all reality, a good man who tried to live uprightly, but his heart betrayed a problem with self-righteousness. I am a good person. I am righteous in and of myself. No one can honestly claim to have kept all the commandments. In fact, a case can be made, and Pastor has made this case on his sermons on on the Ten Commandments, that, um, that we, a case can be made that we have broken, every single one of us have broken every one of the Ten Commandments. When these words of Christ are taken into account in Matthew 5, ye have heard that it was said of them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of his judgment. Whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. 
Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath ought against thee. Then a little bit later in the same chapter, And ye have heard that it was said of them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her, hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. No man can claim to have kept all of the commandments. And if we're really honest with ourselves, more than likely, every single one of us have broken every single one of the Ten Commandments. The law was there to point us to Christ, to show us our need of a Savior. So, let me stop right here for just a minute. If you would, go to your discussion question number five. Discussion question number five. There are many people in this world that if you went up to them and said, are you a good person? Many of them are in the exact same position that this young man is. They look at them, their own lives and they say, you know, I haven't, I haven't done anything really horrible. I haven't robbed the bank. I haven't defrauded my boss or, or um, embezzled money from my company. I give a good day's work for a good day's pay. I have a family. I take care of my wife. I, I support my kids. I'm a good person. How can we reach these type of people? The, the person that is in this position, the person that says, I know that something is missing, but I'm a good person at heart. How can we reach them? Any ideas? You have to use the law. You have to use the law. You have to use the law. They have to come and see that they're not as good as what they really think they are. And really, until we come to that point in our lives, we really cannot have a relationship with Christ. Ezra, my five-year-old, has occasionally, off and on over the last few months, been asking questions about salvation. And we've been working with him and talking with him and counseling with him. But he has not come to the point where he sees himself as a sinner. Now, I could have, to this point, we could have already had him say a prayer and say, okay, you're all good, you're all safe. And, but if he doesn't see himself as a sinner, then you could say all the prayers in the world. And it's not going to do a single bit of good, except being some noise waves, some sound waves going out into the atmosphere. We need to help people see that they're not as good as what they really think that they are. It's one of the reasons why I like the Are You a Good Person tract that we have on our track rack. It's because it uses the wall to show people that they're not as good as they think. You know, that's hard for a person to accept. They've lived their entire life thinking, I'm a pretty good person. And to be told you're not as good as what you think you are. That's hard for a person to accept. I have a relative that is in that position. If you ask him, he'd tell you, yeah, I have my faults. But, I'm, but overall, I'm a good person. Maybe if there is a God, he'll accept me when I see him face to face. Just 
it's just he hasn't been able to take the step and see himself through God's eyes. Jesus did not rebuke this man for his self-righteousness. Instead, he beheld him in love. You know, we don't have to go up to the sinner and say, you know, you're a dirty, rotten, filthy sinner. If you don't get saved, you're going to go to hell. We do not have to be harsh with our delivery. Jesus came to this man in love. And in essence, he said, all right, if you're so good, try loving your neighbor as much as you love yourself. Give away everything you have. At this, the man went away grieved because he had great possessions. Scholars of the language of the New Testament have noted that this term, grieved, was also commonly used to refer to storm clouds. This man's reaction revealed where his focus truly was. Instead of rejoicing at this instruction from Christ, it was as if his day had just been ruined. He came to Jesus saying, thinking, you know, I am something, I have something that Jesus will need. And if I give him enough, then he will give me. As believers, don't we do the same thing sometimes? God, I will serve you. I will do this. I will teach Sunday school. I will, do, I will go out on visitation. I will do this for you. If you do this for me. It's easy to stand in judgment of this man and say, you know, you were wrong. But we also have to stand in judgment of ourselves. Because so often we find ourselves approaching this man, um, Christ the same way that this man did. From the world's accounting system, what can I gain from my relationship with Christ? What an incre incredibly sad moment. Jesus clearly loved this man, but he used this conversation to teach a truth to his disciples and anyone else that, who will listen. How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? Did Christ mean that it was impossible for a rich man to enter heaven? Of course not. He meant that it is impossible to receive the gift of God if our hands are still clutching the things of this world. If we come to Christ looking to gain, looking to get, what can I get out of this? We come to Christ with a self-centered, proud attitude. This man, he came to Christ in a way that brings honor and respect to our Savior. He came with urgency. He was running. He came with respect, good master. He came with humility as he kneeled. We really don't know the end result of what happened to this man. The Bible does not tell us exactly. I would love to think that this man went back convicted in his heart and accepted Christ and came to Christ as Christ would have him. But what we can't do when we come to Christ is come to him with a proud heart, with a self-righteous attitude, I am so good. Christ deserves to give me something. I think because of time, we're going to stop a few minutes early today, and I'm going to stop right there, because this is a good part to stop, because right after this, we begin talking about the disciples, and their 
approach to Christ. God, I have given it all. I, I have surrendered everything to you. Now, what do I get? We'll see. Not next week, but the week after, we'll see that it is the exact same world's accounting system. I have given you everything. Now, you give me. Let's go ahead and have a word of prayer, and we will pick up in this passage um, in two weeks. Uh, we will be gone next week, so somebody else will be teaching the English Sunday School. Um, and so we'll pick this up in two weeks, I believe, on the 18th. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for the time that we have in your word this morning. Lord, we live in this world, and this world does have a great deal of influence over us. How easy... It is for us to begin to, how easy it is for me to begin to allow this world system, what can I get to invade my thinking, to invade my motives, to invade my actions? Lord, we come to you this morning. Lord, we come as this man did with a heart of humility, recognizing our faults, recognizing our sinful condition. And Lord, we ask you to help us to have the proper motive, the proper idea, the proper accounting system for our lives here on earth. That we may give as you have given to us. In your name we pray. Amen.